And this is Greg Palace sitting in as a guest host. Uh, as you know, I usually do the fact injection every week with Carrie Harrison. But this week, with Harrison away, the, the uh, mice can play. And we're going to have some amazing guests. Let's start out at the bottom of the hour. Hang with us on Reality Check. We're going to have the amazing Ben Judah. He is... Uh, He's the author of an amazing biography of Vlad Putin, you know, so he, who didn't just arrive in Russia on an abalone shell. We're going to find out how Putin became Putin and what that means for us. That's uh, Ben Judah uh, at the bottom of the hour. But in the meantime, we've got the amazing, astonishing Josh Fox. Now, if you don't know Josh Fox, shame on you. And I'll tell, but I'll tell you who he is in just a minute. But first, I want to remind you, you can't get a Josh Fox. You can't get a Ben Judah, the, this information anywhere but on KPFK. We are in the middle of a fun drive, and this is Greg Pallast. I put up a $500 matching grant myself. And today, they're paying me the big bucks, zero. So I'm putting in 500 Can you match it by calling 818-985-5735? I know Terry's standing by to take your call. In fact, he's already taking some calls, so be patient. 818-985-5735. 818-985-KPFK. Or even better, so you don't get, don't have to be uh, hanging online while we have this amazing show going on, go to kpfk.org. kpfk.org. And by the way, um, one premium, uh, there's many incredible premiums. We got mugs, we got hats, we've got cats. No, we don't have cats, I'm sorry. Um, but uh, we do have Tom Hartman's brand new book, which won't even be out anywhere but uh, in the stores or Amazon for another week, and that's The Hidden History of Big Brother in America. It's an astonishing book. I've read it now twice. Uh, if you're fans of Tom Hartman or just fans of just good writing, uh, make that $100 minimum donation, $100 minimum donation, you'll get the Tom Hartman's Hidden History of Big Brother in America by going to kpfk.org. That's kpfk.org or 818-985-5735. That's 818-985-KPFK. And now, Josh Fox. Are you there with me, Josh? I'm here. Thank you, Greg. It's always great. <laughs> where to be where is there? You're... Yeah, it's always great to be with you. <laughs> well, actually, you're not. We're, we're, that's another lie. We got to stick with the. This is called reality check, Josh. You're not here. You're in New Orleans, I, right? I am in New Orleans. Okay. But being, I'm being, I'm with you in the sense that we are here together having a conversation. Um, okay. I'm don't a don't hat. don't I'm get sure don't go, don't get picky with me. Let me tell you a little <laughs> bit about Josh Fox. If you've seen Gasland. Gasland 1, 2, 3, 27, 28. Gasland, that amazing film that basically launched the anti-fracking movement. That's Josh Fox's film. And in addition, he's, he's also you – know, tremendous stuff that he has done as a dramatist, as an investigator, as a filmmaker. Uh, by the way, uh, Gasland was cheated out of the Academy Award. Uh, Josh was nominated. Uh, but you know how those things go. Um, I think Putin had a hand in that. Uh, uh, you know, Bernie uh, Sanders relied on Josh Fox uh, to represent him in negotiations on energy, which we want to talk about today. Uh, Josh also has a has created a tremendous theater work called The Truth Has Changed. I saw it, but 
I also read it. It's one of the most amazing things I've ever read. I'm not kidding. Now, Greg Palace does not say, you know, writing is amazing unless it's really amazing. I'm really obnoxious that way. So take my word for it. Josh Fox's The Truth Has Changed is astonishing. And now it's also a podcast. We're going to see if we can get a little bit of that up for you. But um, in the meantime, we do need you to show up for KPFK before we talk to Josh. And go to kpfk.org. I know you've been talking about doing your pledge. You've been thinking about it. But, you know, by the end of the week, the world may be over. Certainly the fund drive may be over. How would you like it if if Los Angeles melted into the ground tomorrow because of the (laughs) conflict in Ukraine and you said, oh, darn, I was supposed to donate to KPFK. So this may be your last (laughs) chance. Um, I'm laughing about it, but we really have to keep the lights on. And because you're not going to get this info from anywhere else. So please go to kpfk.org. Seriously, make that pledge right now. This is Greg Palace. You you know, you see me do investigative reports on democracy now on flashpoints uh, at the 5 p.m., the election crimes bulletin. And, of course, the fact injection here with Carrie Harrison. If you think this type of investigative reporting and real solid information is meaningful, go right now to kpfk.org. Dot .org. So, Ukraine, anything happening there, Josh, that you've heard of? Uh, anything going on? Uh, <laughs> Tell me why well, you as an energy expert, an expert in the dangers of energy leading to global warming, why we should be concerned about Ukraine, oil and gas. Talk well, to me. Well, obviously the big news today is uh, Joe Biden has banned all oil imports from Russia. Um, in, that ain't you know, much, United is States it? doesn't import a lot of oil from Russia or gas, but this is a really significant thing, right? Russia's economy is is uh, something like forty to fifty percent dependent on oil and gas exports. Forty three, forty three percent, Josh. But I'm not being picky. Forty three. Okay, well, thanks, but but it's <laughs> yeah. you know like yeah, it's oil, big. Oil is hugely significant to the Russian economy, um, and uh, so oil. You know, Russia is a petro state. The Ukraine is, um, you know, a part of the equation because there are massive pipelines that run through the Ukraine that bring Russian gas, and we're talking about frack, it's not really frack gas from Russia, but natural gas, we call it natural gas, I don't like to call it natural because it's certainly not natural, methane, to Europe. So there's a crucial pipeline called the Druzhba pipeline that goes through the Ukraine, it's actually called the Friendship Pipeline, that's been there since the 70s. Um, and, you know, Europe has been very dependent on Russian gas uh, for that period of time in, in the last so few decades. So what's the problem with been, that? Well, um, that gives enormous Russia enormous power uh, to exert mm-hmm. political power over people in, in Europe, right? So the Ukraine also gains a lot from this pipeline because the Ukraine uh, – charges transit fees to Russia. So that's several billion dollars a year. So there is a, there, there's a thing about pipelines, which is that pipelines are kind of like getting married, right? There's one customer and there's one provider. When you have a pipeline, you have a contract for about 30 years. So those pipelines going through Ukraine are long, long-term pipelines, and those are pro- providing natural gas to Europe for heating, especially in the winter, and then for, to provide power in the summer for, for cooling and air conditioning and so on. Now, there was a pipeline that was going directly from the Arctic in Russia 
um, to the to Germany uh, called Nord Stream 2. The pipeline had been completed in this fall, but Germany was sitting on the re- sitting on the the final okay. They were basically like a driver's license. The whole thing is ready to go, and that was going to bypass the Ukraine to bring Russian gas from the Arctic to Germany, and that would then go throughout all of Europe. Nord Stream 2, the Biden administration was really um, hammering. They did not want Nord Stream 2 to go through. They did not want Europe to increase its dependency on Russian gas. This was very much a Cold War mentality. Um, and we saw a Cold War mentality play itself out throughout the Obama administration, Hillary Clinton's State Department. What they were saying was, get off of Russian gas. It's no good to be um, dependent on Vladimir Putin and on Russia. Well, how um, do we They're yeah. unreliable. So what the Clinton administration's policy was, and this is the real fear here, um, is that it meant more fracking. The uh, Sorry, not the Clinton administration, but the Clinton State Department under the, in the Obama administration and the, the Biden administration were very um, much saying f- frack in Poland. Frack in Romania and Bulgaria, frack in Germany, frack in Italy, frack in France, frack in the UK, frack your own gas. In other words, destroy and pollute and contaminate your own uh, backyard with all the horrible things that fracking does um, as a way to you know, diversify your energy mix so that you're less dependent on Putin. Now, a lot of European countries did not go for that. There was a very, very strong anti-fracking movement. Mm-hmm. France banned fracking. In the UK, it's been uh, put, to, put to bed. Um, Germany banned it. Italy banned it. Netherlands banned it. Scotland banned it. Ireland banned it. Scotland even banned imports. So what you saw in, in Europe was a real push for renewable energy, green energy, especially in Germany. Um, that was wind power and solar power. Ger- Germany's policy was called the energy venda, which meant that people could produce power in their own backyards and that Germany would set the price. So if you set up a windmill or solar panels in your backyard, you are producing uh, renewable energy and they were going to shut down their coal plants and shut down their nuclear plants. However, they're not all the way there yet. They're still about 30% of their uh, power supply is coming from gas and that gas is coming from Russia. So um, what happens? Uh, Germany says, no, we're, we're not going to do the Nord Stream pipeline, even though they spent $10 billion and years and years and years building it. Right. And they're in this marriage, this 30 year contract with Russia for Nord Stream two. Um, when Russia decides to recognize the so-called breakaway provinces in the Western part or sorry, the Eastern part of Ukraine, Two days later, Germany says, we're canceling Nord Stream 2, even though the pipeline is there. We're not putting any gas through it. That's it. We're done. Two days after that, Putin invades the Ukraine, right? So there's some funny timing here, right? Um, now, that's not to say that um, experts believe Putin has been trying to figure out how to invade the Ukraine and take the Ukraine back since day one in office, since this has been an objective of his for a but very oil, long time. Yeah. But gas plays a role here. Um, and it, it's playing a role in all of these conflicts, right? So the question is, the other the other part of this that people don't really understand and, and is not being widely reported is that Ukraine itself um, has a, a hell of a lot of gas, 127 trillion cubic feet of gas in the Ukraine. That's a lot of gas. So UK, Ukraine, were, if Ukraine were to mine and or frack or, you know, drill for its own gas, it could potentially, uh, it, it also supplies some of its own gas, but there, these are always resource wars. We have to think about these as resource wars. Um, there's more complicated well, I have history to tell this, you, but uh, certainly an oil and gas background is important to understand this conflict. 
Um, and when we really think about what all of this means, it means that we're seeing the dying beast of the oil industry flailing as we are finding ways uh, and actually implementing ways of replacing oil and gas in our lives, which we all need to do um, to stop tyranny, which also has the added benefit of saving the world from climate okay. change. So, well, um, you know, there's a lot of ways to view this conflict, but certainly through the lens of gas is an interesting one. OK, so for those this, by the way, you're listening to the amazing Josh Fox, the filmmaker of the award-winning Astonishing Gasland series on gas fracking, and also the creator of the Truth Has Changed podcast, books, film, and uh, stage production. The Truth Has Changed is quite amazing. And we're talking with uh, with Josh Fox here at KPFK. You don't – you know what? You used to be able to get pick up Josh Fox on CNN and MSDNC or whatever they call it and all those places. <laughs> but today um, – they're not so excited about hearing about a guy who's just this Cassandra saying, if we don't get off our dependence on uh, gas and oil, we are, uh, we are not only going to fry the planet, but we'll be enchained by dictatorial maniacs. Not that that's happened. Uh, so, and by the way, uh, for those, so right now, if you appreciate hearing Josh Fox, and this is Greg Pallas uh, sitting in for Kerry Harrison on Reality Check. KPFK 90.7 on your dial in the Southland right now. Go to your phone, 818-985-5735, 818-985-KPFK. Even better. My suggestion, kpfk.org. Come on, you order you order junk food on Grubhub, you can order the truth at KPFK. Dot O-R-G. And I want to point out something. Basically, the gas lines have become a noose because now we can't – here we're in this position where we have um, tanks rolling into Ukraine. Yeah. And they're being funded. If you go to the gas pump, you're just funding this invasion. I'm going to put it very bluntly. Here's what's happening. The price of oil has jumped to 130 bucks a barrel. This is Greg Pallas. Do you remember this from my fact injection from last week? Well, now at $130 a barrel, that's worth nearly $1 billion a day extra to Vlad Putin. Whereas Josh just said, you have between 40 50% of the Russian economy is, uh, and the Russian government is funded by oil, gas revenues, and royalties. So we can't well, cut them off. And, and so what's it, happened is I should also mention, like you mentioned, Nord Stream 2. Mm-hmm. Nord Stream 1 yeah. is still sending yeah. 1.9 trillion cubic feet of gas into Germany every year. 1.9 trillion cubic feet. So that windfall is still – that wind machine is still on creating the war windfall. So as those tanks rolls and, keep, and keeps the price of oil up, which is also natural gas is tied to the price of oil, this is what's happened. This is the price of not dealing with the energy climate crisis. Yeah, I okay, And that's the key I- thing. Yeah, go ahead. I jump in here for a second, Greg. There's a couple. I, I do let you in once in a while, explain. Josh. Okay, go you right know, ahead. But but <laughs> certainly a Green New Deal for the United States, a Green New Deal for Europe. These are absolutely 
um, have to accelerate at this moment. But there's another piece of this, right? Yes. Which is that there's um, natural gas in general, you have to have a pipeline to distribute and the fields of the natural gas fields have to be near a pipeline to make this work, right? So one of the things that's happening is the Western Siberian fields, which are the, the pipeline that goes through Ukraine, they are starting to run out. Mm-hmm. So those fields are depleting, they're in decline. The, the gas that's coming through those pipelines in Ukraine is starting to run out. Right near those pipelines um, in Ukraine, there happens to be a lot of gas. Um, this potentially could be a motivating factor for Putin. But in the Nord Stream pipelines, those pipelines are coming from different gas fields, which are brand new. And experts say uh, that there's a hundred years of gas up in that on, in those Arctic gas fields, which are connected to Nord Stream One and Nord Stream Two. Now, any person who's acquainted with the climate understands a hundred more years of gas is basically doomsday for the planet, since gas is actually uh, the worst fuel that we can develop if we're talking about climate change. Uh, the gas industry loved to say that they were better than coal, that their emissions were half that of coal, uh, but it's not true because when you burn the gas, yes, it's half the carbon dioxide of coal for the same energy, but the gas itself leaks everywhere, and that's methane. Raw methane is a 100 times more potent than carbon dioxide is in the atmosphere, so when you add up all the methane that's leaking through those leaky Ukrainian pipelines, leaky Russian pipelines, leaky American pipelines, Pipelines, leakage in Los Angeles, leakage in Philadelphia, leakage in Washington disease, upwards of five to 10% of all that methane is just going straight up in the atmosphere. That makes methane and natural gas, frack gas, worse than coal for the climate. So when we're talking about like 100 years of gas, um, that's a bad thing. That's not a good thing. And we have to get away from that mentality. But added to the complications here is now in the United States, they have um, uh, pioneered uh, a use for frack gas, which is called LNG, liquefied natural gas. Mm -hmm. LNG terminals are being proposed for all across the United States, here in Louisiana, in California, in uh, along the eastern seaboard. To liquefy that gas, put it on ships like they do oil, and put it, you know, ship it anywhere they want in the world. It becomes a commodity at that point. It's sold on the spot market. It's mm-hmm. very um, expensive. A lot of that gas is going to Asia, to places like Japan, to places like China. Um, but th- what's happening right now is Germany cancels Nord Stream two, and now they're in the um, in the business of creating new LNG terminals for what? For American gas to come to Europe on ships. Um, and that means you're going to start to see the American fracking industry, those, you know, horrible, disgusting, polluting, uh, greedy um, folks who would like to poison you in your backyard, ramping up their PR, ramping up their lobbying, saying we need to frack the United States to hell. We need to frack Europe to hell. So this and my warning here right now to everybody is. Those anti-fracking movements, those that infrastructure that we built 10 years ago, coast to coast, across Europe, across the world, that said, no, we are going to stop mm-hmm. fracking. We're going to ban fracking. We're going to say not uh, in our backyards, not in our neighbor's backyards, not in our country, not in our neighbor's countries. We're going to have to be even f- more um, at the front lines now to, to say we need to stop fracking because what's going to happen is these in, these industries these fracking guys are going to come out and say look we can make up the shortfall of uh, Putin's uh, gas in Europe this is the wrong answer 
The right well, answer is it, to immediately start to ramp up production of the wind and the sun, which which actually we can do, and it right. doesn't have a tendency of causing wars, tanks, um, you know, the toxification of the landscape, me, the ruin of the water table, uh, cancer for your family. You know, these are the things that fracking does. Well, as I know, in fact, actually, I know he's trying it. But believe it or not, if Germany were dependent on solar power, it'd be very hard for Putin to, you know, grab the sun and box it up and, and create a crisis. But he can certainly well, that would truly cut make off the... your pipe. And that's yeah. the problem. We are basically enchained here. So you have this ridiculous situation in which there's complete dependence on Russia to keep Europe heated. And in fact, the Ukrainians now, of course, are... are uh, I just got a message from our guy, Nick P. I won't use his last name. He's in a basement, uh, part of the Palace investigative team. He's wow. in a basement in Kharkiv, uh, which is the number, the second largest city of Ukraine, which is under bombardment. And if they are, remember, this is the winter. You know, think of the Russian winter. The Ukraine winter is pretty much the same, a little bit warmer. But right now it's freezing. And there is no heat in Ukraine. There's no heat. Because the Russians have, needless to say, cut off Ukraine. Not just it's not just Germany. It's Ukraine, of course. And it's one of the things that they're doing to freeze. As Nick says, they're trying to freeze us out, and of course, mm-hmm. starve us out. When you become dependent, when you become dependent on these gas lines. Now, by the way, just a follow-up, quick oh. thing. By the way, th- we're listening to Josh Fox, the filmmaker that you know from the creator of Gasland and his uh, new, uh, one of his wonderful newer. Productions as the truth has changed. Uh, you're listening to KPFK 90.7 in Los Angeles, and we are in Fun Drive. So if you are listening to this and you haven't paid up, you're just listening for free. You're just stealing it. You're just shoplifting this wonderful information from Josh Fox. Cut it out. Go to kpfk.org. Put in your tithe. Make it 100 bucks, and we'll send you the hidden history of Big Brother in America by Tom Hartman. It's insane. It's amazing. I've read it out loud uh, during his show. It's just an astonishing book. But go to kpfk.org or 818-985-5735. That's 818-985-KPFK. This is Greg Pals. One quick thing, Josh, I wanted to mention to people as a follow-up to my fact injections from prior weeks. I did say for the immediate – because we – we don't have this – unfortunately, if we had put up the solar panels that Josh Fox is talking about, put up the windmills, we could tell Putin to blow. But now we're stuck on sucking on that pipe of his, and we can't get away from it. But oh, the good news that. is – We're also seeing yeah. – I'm sure we're seeing price gouging from the major oil companies. Oh, well, they, they're, they're surfing – oh, my God. Th- think about this, Josh. I mean – let me just yeah. say here that Go Bernie ahead. Sanders just uh, posted oil company rev- revenues last year, ExxonMobil up 57%. Mm-hmm. Chevron, one of the most dastardly companies in the entire world, up 84%. Shell up 49%. BP up 45%. So we're looking at oil companies that have had record profits, windfall profits, um, now, uh, you know, ga- prob- most likely gouging at the, at the pump. I can't. Well, no, it's, it's real simple. The They're selling the market. oil. Right. Oil is selling at an international market. But the basically bottom line is here, look, I mean, America, everywhere you go, you don't see the Toyota Prius. You don't see the Honda Fit. You don't see the electric cars. You see giant SUVs everywhere. Um, you know, you see giant trucks everywhere with one person driving them. Listen, people in the United States, especially in Los Angeles, we have got 
to start consuming less oil and less gas. We have got to start to put on a sweater instead of turn up that thermostat. We have got to start to, you know, uh, you know, open the window instead of having the AC on all day. And we have definitely got to start to invest in public transportation infrastructure, bike lanes, bicycles. But, you know, listen, we just had uh, uh, the fervor for the very first time in the history of the world, the United States met its climate targets. It met the targets for the Paris Agreement. We reduced emissions. Do you know when that time was? It was in the first three months of COVID. The first several months of COVID back in 2020, when everyone said, we're not driving to work anymore, we're going on Zoom. All of the things that happened in that first three months, right, where cities, you saw traffic just shut down and and streets opening up for bicycles, right? You know, my brother used to live in Los Angeles and he used to bike from West Hollywood to Venice every single day because it was faster than driving. Healthy it was guy. faster to take his bike than to drive from Santa Monica to West Hollywood because the traffic was so bad that it would just snarl. And what, so what should you do in that situation? You've got to stop. You've got to start, start cutting away car lanes and start adding bike lanes. Los Angeles is not that big. People, we can get on the road. We got, we have e-bikes. E-bikes are an extraordinary, wonderful way of getting around. We don't need to be driving. We have to start to use our ingenuity. We can call them Putin. We can call Putin away peddling. from not just Putin, <laughs> because let me just say this. If Putin is in fact in the Ukraine and part of his reasoning is oil and gas, right? That means it is a war of resources. And what was the last major invasion of a superpower of a sovereign nation? Well, that happened to be the war in Iraq. And the United States is now controlling the oil from Iraq and selling it all over the world. And lo and behold, capitalism does not have morality. Capitalism's like, oh, sure. You want to sell Iraqi oil that you used with, that you got from an illegal invasion and killed a million people doing that? Sure. We'll buy it. No problem. The oil and gas are the fuels of tyranny. If you want more tyranny, you invest in more oil and gas. If you let want me, uh, to get away let... from this kind of uh, mentality where you can just subjugate whoever you feel like and roll tanks in and shock and awe populations, kill civilians, well, then invest more in oil and gas. If you want to stop that, well, it's time to you know, ride a bike and stop Putin, ride the train and stop ExxonMobil. ExxonMobil, by the way, still has a partnership with Putin in Sakhalin in an island in the Arctic where they're producing a huge amount of oil right. and gas. Well, together. I will say that, uh, um, well, a couple of things. I did want to do a quick follow-up. By the way, we're listening to Josh Fox. This is Greg Palace sitting in for Kerry Harrison, Reality Check. And Josh, I hope you'll be able to stay with us a little bit longer, if that's okay with you. But in no the problem. in the meantime, uh, I should... I want to follow up. I did say, uh, okay, we're, and we're going to have Ben Judah on in a couple minutes. And um, I did want to say that I'd mentioned the idea that if we went to Venezuela instead of embargoing and and uh, and uh, sabotaging and sanctioning Venezuela, that we could put two million barrels of oil on the market. I think Mr. Biden must have heard me because they are they uh, are now the State Department's now in Caracas to cut a deal to end the sanctions on Venezuela. So some there's a kind of weird uh, uh, silver lining to this conflict. And in addition, um, Iran has Iran's negotiator uh, with the U.S. has tweeted out that they've basically reached an agreement with the U.S. That's another million barrels of oil. So. Uh, apparently, uh, from instead of Putin, Listen. we're going to be getting our oil now. Venezuela and um, and and Iran and and reduce those conflicts. 
that's I don't think how we want to solve this. We want to get can our, say, can the I pipe out of, our, uh, I, I, out of listen, our arm. Okay. Back in the OPEC crisis in the 70s, the United States started to import a lot more oil from Mexico. Um, Mexican, the Mexican economy then became dependent on oil uh, exports. And lo and behold, when um, the OPEC crisis was over, they crashed the Mexican, Mexican economy and th- threw a lot of Mexicans into poverty. We cannot keep doing this in whatever country it is, Iran, Venezuela, Mexico, you, you name it. We have to get off of oil, period. The oil companies are the most destructive force on this planet. They're more destructive than Putin. They're more destructive um, than imperialism of all kinds. The oil and gas industry, uh, last year, the big five oil companies made $154 billion in profits. And this they spent year? $13 billion on stock buybacks. They handed out $69 million in compensation to their CEOs. And gas prices are up now over $4. Guess what? Gas prices should be of over four dollars gas prices should be over ten dollars you cruel man josh because the the harm all right the harm that gas does now i'm not saying that this should be a noose tightened around the neck of the poor because that is not that is exactly what happened in france when macron tried to uh raise oil prices and everybody rebelled and and you saw the yellow jackets come we're we're seeing we're talking about the fact that the richest one percent the world's richest one percent produce double the combined carbon emissions of the poorest 50%, according to the United Nations. What does this mean? This means we cut off the richest that there are. This means that there are all sorts of ways uh, through a fee and dividend process, but the true cost of oil is far above $10, $20. Oh, yeah. We're, Do you I, know that 10 what, million the, people a year, 10 million people a year die from fossil fuel uh, air pollution? That is one-sixth of the deaths on the planet are caused by fossil fuel emissions. Thank you, Josh. Wait, 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 wait. i got to stop here because i got another guest waiting. With that really grim note, thank you very much, Josh. Well, listen, Uh, let me end on a positive note for Greg by saying, listen, the anti-fracking movement banned fracking in New York State and Maryland and Vermont and banned fracking all across Europe. It's on the verge of banning fracking in California. We now need. A movement that says we're going to take that one step further and we are going to start to move ourselves off of oil. We have to move ourselves off of oil and gas. And we as a people can do that. Let this crisis be uh, a part of our uh, you know, enthusiasm and our passion going forward to, to meet those objectives. A better world is possible. A world without Putin's, a world without Exxon Mobil's, a world without Chevron's. We can do that. We can achieve that. This has to be our uh, a point of, 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 of leaping off for that. I want wow. to see that happen. Okay, well, that's Josh Fox. We're listening carefully. Thank you, Josh, from uh, co- calling in from uh, coming Thank to us from New Orleans. Uh, again, the uh, creator of the Gasland series and also The Truth Has Changed. Uh, this People is- can see all that stuff at Josh. Uh, Fox Film on Instagram. That gives you a link to my uh, to my uh, Josh my Fox Film on Instagram. If you don't go there or Twitter, yeah, don't tell Putin. Um, and, okay, see you later, Josh. Thanks, Greg. Once again, this is Always Greg Palace sitting in for Carrie Harrison. This is Reality Check on KPFK FM in the Southland ninety point seven. We are in a fun drive. Stay and don't touch that dial because we have the biographer of a guy named Vlad Putin, waiting online, Ben Judah. This guy is amazing. He is the author of Fragile Empire, How Russia Fell in Love, Fell in and Out of Love 
with Vladimir Putin. I don't know if if he's out or in at the moment. We'll get to Ben in one second. I just want to say, please go to the phones, 818-985-5735. This is Greg Palace saying, what you're about to hear is extraordinary. You're not going to hear it many other places. If you think it's extraordinary, go to kpfk.org and make your pledge. Uh, Ben Judah, are you with us? Hello. Hi. Uh, Hi, Ben. This is Ben Judah from uh, who's calling us, uh, contacting us from New York. Ben Judah is uh, with the Atlantic Council there, as you can hear from his uh, funny accent. Um, he is uh, from Britain. Uh, many people know that me, Greg Palace, I used to be a BBC uh, reporter for a program that they have there called Newsnight. And uh, I was listening to British uh, radio and I heard Ben Judah give an astonishing analysis of what's going on. I wanted to ask you, Ben, and, and he has a book, again, this book, Fragile Empire, How Russia Fell In and Out of Love with Vladimir Putin from Yale Press. I got to tell you, Ben, I thought, ah, do I want to read this book? It's a few years old. What Would it be real? Two things about it. It's not only astonishingly brilliant and important as a book, but it's incredibly well-written. I understand you won a literary prize for that. Is that correct? Oh, thank you very much. That's very kind of you to say. Yeah, it's, it's really uh, an astonishing book. I want to ask you a few questions. We have about 20 minutes or so. So I want to get to a few things that people don't understand. I want to go a bit into how Vlad Putin became the primo in Russia. You know, he seemed to have dropped, uh, floated down from an abalone shell, that we didn't know who this guy was until he became prime minister under Yeltsin. I want to go back to your very uh, astonishing write-up of that history. To begin with, apparently this began in Davos, Switzerland, the the meeting of the Pubas in in Davos. I'd like to tell us about that. There were some oligarchs who got together to help out Mr. Yeltsin. Could you explain what happened? Well, that's a really important question, and thank you for asking. I think we need to really begin with the collapse of the Soviet Union. Yes. When the Soviet Union collapsed, Russians thought that they were living... Uh, Let's give some years here. Excuse me. 1989, right? We're talking in that period. The the fall of the Berlin Wall is 1989, and 1991 is the end of the Soviet Union. Yes. in 1991, the Russian population believed that it was living in what had been a successful, stable, modern country, and that within a few years, they would be living like Americans at best, British people at worst. It didn't turn out like that because the collapse of the Soviet Union turned into the collapse of the Soviet economy, which turned into the collapse of the Soviet welfare state. And then coming on from that, it became in a large uh, measure, the collapse of the state itself, a very, very chaotic situation uh, ensued, uh, terrible inflation, terrible breakdown of public services, all kinds of you know physical and uh, metaphysical epidemics crossed the country from a crime wave to literal kind of illnesses. And in this atmosphere, in fact, I think let me of- let me just add some uh, facts in there from that I took from you that uh, something like 60% of the Russian population fell into poverty. And what was it? The number of calorie, the calorie intake of the average Russian fell by half. Basically, you had mass starvation. This was one of the most dreadful sociological shocks to befall a population outside of wartime that makes the 
1930s and the Great Depression in the United States, sort of like a walk in the park. Yes. In this atmosphere, a embattled, increasingly uh, drunken, sick, deluded, and frightened uh, president that had led Russia into this uh, situation, Boris Yeltsin, grew to rely on a bunch of businessmen known as the oligarchs, who had seized control of large amounts of assets in the country that had been the sort of project and the work of the Soviet people and held by the state, and were given access to these in order to support him. This group of oligarchs, as Yeltsin got sicker and sicker and more and more unstable, began to try and work, think about what a successor could look like, where things could go next. And when the country defaulted in 1998, that was once described to me at, by one of Putin's former advisors as the second founding of the state. That was when hopes of everything working out, Russia being able to become a sort of modern democracy really just died because people had lost their savings again. It was the tail end of a, a period that would be very difficult. Like Hope was really extinguished uh, then for many. It was after then that they began searching for somebody who could be, in a sense, Yeltsin's bodyguard to let him retire, the, to look for a stable successor. They were looking for somebody who was like the anti-Boris Yeltsin, where Boris Yeltsin was old and drunken. They wanted somebody who was young and sober. Where Boris now, Yeltsin I, I was understand. A politician. Mm-hmm. They were looking for somebody military. And that's where, you know, by hook or by crook, Vladimir Putin came up as one of the potential candidates. Now, I understand. I, just, I want to interrupt you here because there's a very interesting part of this story. The oligarchs from reading – again, we're with Ben Judah, the author of Fragile Empire – how Russia Fell In and Out of Love with Vlad Putin. It's an amazing book by Yale University Press. Uh, ben is with the Atlantic Council. He's also a tremendous writer. You'll see his work in the Atlantic and, and all over the place. Uh, but you brought up in your book here an extraordinary point that the oligarchs, these billionaires who had basically stolen the nation, actually sent emissaries to Chile to... Basically, they were looking for a Pinochet, the dictator of Chile at the time, the guy who overthrew the elected government of Allende and and, uh, formed a military dictatorship and became kind of an uber capitalist um, who, uh, you know, under the guidance of the Chicago boys, privatized everything, which is what happened in Russia. So they wanted a new Pinochet. Could you explain that they about going how this Pinochet concept was adopted and that's how they found Putin? An idea became very popular in Russia at the time, at the end of the 1990s, that the country needed a Russian Pinochet. That is, in the Russian understanding of it, a strong man who would brook little dissent and would sort of forcibly push the country forward to a capitalist uh, future, grow the grow the economy and um, be as harsh as was necessary mm-hmm. on anybody who challenged that agenda. That was the... That was essentially what the oligarchs were looking for. And that is how Putin presented himself to a certain extent when he got to know a series of oligarchs, beginning with Peter Avon, who introduced him to Boris Berezovsky, and then Boris Berezovsky, who came to see him as the right successor for Boris Yeltsin, who could protect Yeltsin and protect what was known as the family, the group of sort of oligarchs, officials, and Yeltsin's own daughter and her husband that has sort of wielded uh, power behind the sick old man. 
Well, I understand, uh, you know, I, I, uh, for those who follow my work, uh, this is Greg Pallast. Again, I'm sitting in for Carrie Harrison. The show is Reality Check on KPFK FM in Los Angeles. Um, and again, we're in Fun Drive. Please call right now while you're listening, 818-985-5735. Uh, sorry, Ben, I do have to make a pitch from uh, to, our spo- to our sponsors, the people that support this program, 818-985-KPFK, or even better, so you can listen to Ben uh, Judah. Um, go to kpfk.org and make your tax-deductible donation right now. Now, Ben, you were talking about uh, Boris uh, Berezovsky and you're mentioning these oligarchs. We throw around the term on TV in the U.S. of oligarchs, Russian oligarchs. Could you explain how these guys became oligarchs, how they made their money? What did they take? What do they have? How do we get these guys called oligarchs? The Soviet Union was not a market economy. It was a communist state. It's Enormous natural resources were owned by the state. When Russia transitioned to capitalism and the Soviet Union collapsed, the political elites, political brains in the Kremlin believed that unless they privatized the stuff as quickly as possible, the opportunity would be lost and Russia would never become a market uh, economy. By the way, let me just throw in, uh, we also had people like Larry Summers from Harvard who had been... uh, who uh, had been uh, a deputy treasury secretary and then later treasury secretary under Obama, but under Clinton was treasury secretary. They were calling for shock therapy, as they call it, and there there was plenty of shocks. So how did then Berezovsky end up and his buddies end up owning Russia then? Yeah, uh, exactly that. You know, there was the government increasingly sort of beleaguered, felt the need to uh, privatize at high speed, And the people who positioned themselves to purchase these assets were a set of Russian businessmen who managed to get their hands on them crookedly for next to nothing in exchange mostly for political favors to this uh, political establishment in the Kremlin. And and I understand among the assets that they took, the the biggest prize is the privatization of the, the oil and gas industry. Is that correct? That's exactly the case, you know, but it was not just oil. There was also gas, nickel, titanium, palladium, really all of the riches in the periodic table. Russia has them uh, plenty. And they got this. There's something called the, the um, what is it, loan for shares, where basically people were handed shares as far as and it, you straighten out because you're the expert. They were, the workers were sold, said, you now own your companies. They're starving and they sold off their shares for peanuts or less than peanuts. There were a whole variety of truly uh, scandalous political favors offered to these uh, people, which might sound sort of complicated, such as the sort of infamous loan for shares uh, auction, but reality are are really very simple, which is the government in the Kremlin wanted these people's support as it transitioned to a market economy. It was ready to turn them into oligarchs in exchange of them supporting the government afterwards. It was really that simple. However, by the end of the 90s, it had become clear that the transition had not delivered the promises that Larry Summers or other sort of Harvard economists had promised. But instead, the population had become frightened that Russia was going to collapse completely. Yes. 
Um, and so are you still there? I'm sorry, it seemed to cut off. I'm still here, yeah. Okay, good. I didn't want to lose you. This is Greg Pallast. I'm sitting in for Carrie Harrison. The program is Reality Check on KPFK in Los Angeles. Go to kpfk.org. Make your pledge. You're not hearing this stuff anywhere else, my friends. Go to kpfk.org. Now, so you ended up with people like Berezovsky. Uh, do they still have a big hunk of the uh, oil industry? Are they making with the oil at 130 bucks a barrel? Are they cashing in uh, the um, oligarchs and billionaires on this? Really, one of the most important moments in the transition of Putin being at first a populist strongman in a failing democracy to a personalist dictator, mm-hmm. which he is uh, today, took place um, just over just under 20 years ago when he confronted the oligarch Mikhail Khodorkovsky. And the fundamental question at play there was who was sovereign over oil? Who really owned it? Was it the state, the interests of the Kremlin, or was it the oligarchs that had privatized it? Khodorkovsky thought that he owned all of these resources because he'd managed to get his hands on them and could do whatever he wanted uh, with those resources, including building up a sort of political campaign to challenge Putin for his authoritarianism and potentially sell a lot of those resources to uh, American companies. And Putin wasn't having that. His attitude was I am ultimately sovereign over oil because I'm the president and because I am the state. I see. So now, so you have these oligarchs and going back to that meeting in Davos, it looked like back in the, you could give me the year, um, it looked like the old reconstituted Communist Party of Russia was going to win the election. Then the billionaires stepped in. Could you explain that? Russia in the 1990s was never as much of a democracy as a lot of Americans believed the election in 1996 was not a free and fair election. It was, to a certain extent, uh, rigged around the edges. All kinds of corrupt deals were done with these uh, oligarchs in order to support uh, Boris uh, Yeltsin. And there was a widespread use of what's known as political technology in Russia, that sort of chicanery and trickery to ensure that the communist uh, party wouldn't kind of come back to power through the uh, ballot box. Now, it's very so that was Yeltsin versus- really a long time ago. That's really yes. a long time ago. Russia's a very different country. Mm-hmm. Even though we have a lot of billionaires in Russia, very few of them are what we would think of as oligarchs in that sense from the 1990s. Just after the uh, war had broken out, what Putin calls a special military operation, he gathered the so-called oligarchs to a big hall in the Kremlin, St. Catherine's Hall. And if you're going to look at all the people assembled there, really only about 10% of them are what we would think of as oligarchs in the sense that we've been talking about them. That's sort of strong and mighty men of means who um, really are their own men. The rest of them are either state company directors with a KGB, SVR, or FSB past, or people that Putin has created who owe their position to him, not the other way around. Okay, so let me ask you a question then. Um, you know, Biden and the West have made a big deal. Oh, we're we're imposing sanctions. We're grabbing yachts from the uh, oligarchs. Are the sanctions going to have a big effect or not on the, stalling Putin? 
We went into the crisis thinking that Russia was far more of an authoritarian regime than it really is. A regime is where you have billionaires or bureaucrats or diplomats, countervailing sources of power, being able to influence a strongman leader. And one of the ideas was that if we threaten to sanction the oligarchs, they'll pull Putin back from the brink. In fact, we saw that these people had basically no influence because Putin had begun to terrify them, become very, very distant from them. He's even more distant from the Russian elite than Stalin was. At least Stalin used to enjoy a good dinner and a slap-up meal and a bit of drunken storytelling with his uh, ministers, even if they were terrified uh, of him. And... The reality is, is that these people now their businesses are being destroyed are not going to be able to pull Putin back from the brink because they don't really have any power anymore in contemporary uh, Russia. Really, 90% of the people we think of as oligarchs in Russia work for Putin, are created really by Putin. They're just placeholders that he's put there or former intelligence um officials in order to command the Russian economy. The days so, of Boris Borisovsky are a long time ago. So then uh, sanctions will not offset the windfall that Putin's getting from the $130 a barrel oil. Is that kind of what well, so we the can Well, the question of Russian oil is quite complicated because that might be the price of Russian oil, but how are they going to sell it? How are they going to ship it? How are, who's actually going to transact with them in the spot markets? Uh, it's not as clear cut and we're still not sure through the sanctions regime how easy it's going to be for him to get access to this stuff. And also it's unclear how much he's going to be willing to sell. There's been a um, statement circulating on uh, Russian uh, media uh, that Putin is planning some sort of raw materials uh, embargo on allied countries with the list to be drawn up and announced uh, tomorrow. So it's very unclear to me where exactly we're going to be ending up. But fundamentally, the point, point remains, which is sanctioning oligarchs or so-called oligarchs is good because it removes money launderers, uh, criminals and people who essentially form part of a FSB, SVR, influence network in our societies from our societies we disentangle ourselves from these people who've been breaking all kinds of laws that they shouldn't have been it's simply good for us we should be doing that regardless of whether it changes putin's behavior but the real big thing mm -hmm. is russia is a hydrocarbon state and if we want to cut off putin's war chest we want to stop Putin's war machine, we need to not be in a situation where we are paying hundreds of millions of dollars a day uh, in money in order to get his oil and gas. Well, in fact, um, I want to ask you about something else. What would stop, what would slow down Putin's war machine? Like I say, if you were listening in, I actually have a member of the Palest investigative team, my journalism group, who is in a basement right now in Kharkiv, freezing, uh, food's running out and he says uh, the messages I'm getting from him when he can get through on the messages is that uh, there's uh, artillery shelling every one to two hours in Kharkiv. How do we stop this – the tanks – the Russian tanks from rolling? I think that making Putin realize that unless he moves swiftly to a ceasefire, 
we will take unprecedented historic efforts at accelerated speed to decarbonize the European economy and render Russia's fundamental growth driver, which powers his uh, country, um, defunct. I think that's the only way to really uh, make him uh, frightened about the uh, future. But the truth is Mm -hmm. that even that might not be enough because... We don't really know what's going on in this man's head. We don't really know what's going on in the Kremlin. At the moment, the Kremlin's become really a black box to us. And Macron and the Finnish president, after meeting him, both said that Putin had become a different person since they met him in 2019. And there's lots of indications that Putin went through some kind of important personal shift during the pandemic which he lived in intense personal lockdown, acting as if he's intensely immunocompromised. Wow. Uh, By the way, we're speaking with Ben Judah, the Atlantic Council and author of Fragile Empire, uh, how Russia fell in and out of love with Vladimir Putin. By the way, so let me ask you a question. Are the Russians right now in or out of love with Vlad? Well, the Russians have grown to fear him, and that would be the third uh, part of the book if I was ever going to uh, update it, which is, you know, that story of the Russian people sort of falling in love with a populist strongman who promised them uh, order and then realising that he'd built an authoritarian regime which was damaging their future prospects has entered a third phase, which is a phase of fear. Something I've been thinking about a lot over the uh, last few days, though, is mm-hmm. an eerie, almost prophetic warning that Putin gave in 1996 when he was interviewed on uh, local TV in St. Petersburg when he was a deputy mayor. And in this warning, Putin says that he fears that Russia could in the future return to some form of totalitarian rule like that of the Soviet Union. And speaking in broad brushstrokes about the Russian people, he says that the trouble is the mentality of the Russian people, who even though it would quickly cause huge harm and be felt in every family uh, in the country, this iron hand, the Russian people, he said, had still believed that it would be sort of desirable and positive to have some form of strong leader to set things right. It's very clear from that interview that Putin, even though he thought he was talking about the Russian people, was really talking about himself. But it's an eerie uh, warning from 1996. Well, actually, case. that's a good – there's two – I want to follow up on that. We're speaking with uh, Ben Judah of the Atlantic Council uh, from New York. Um, uh, uh, He is the author of Fragile Empire, How Russia Fell in and Out of Love with Vladimir Putin. I want to ask you what I call the the Gestapo phase, or what I think you call the Gestapo phase on British radio. But first, I want to tell people you're listening to Greg Pallast sitting in for Kerry Harrison on Reality Check, where KPFK dot org is where you can not only listen to these programs and pass this on if you can want to we're going to keep get this uh program up so you can podcast it out but also kpfk.org is where you make your donation i'm serious you're not going to get this information on you know in the u.s media i had to listen in on london broadcasting to find ben judah we bring you these extraordinary in-depth program that you're not going to hear on National Petroleum Radio. Go to kbfk.org. Make your donation. Ben Judah, 
don't know whether it was you or, or um, Professor Clark uh, who joined you on LBC, London Broadcasting, but you said what uh, you're worried about is the Gestapo phase, that there were um, um, basically police vans moving in with the uh, troops. Could you explain that? Well, that uh, was um, Professor Clark's uh, uh, view, not mine. But I am also very worried about what the future could look like for occupied Ukraine. You know, we have seen uh, Putin commit, along with the armed forces, the sort of Rosgvardia force. And that means police vans and uh, riot um, police capacity and uh, paddy wagons have been deployed to these cities and there is a risk that Putin could give uh, an order to start mass imprisonments or worse to populations that uh, resist. Meanwhile, in Russia, we've seen Russia take a qualitative shift from being a repressive authoritarian state to one that is starting to look more and more totalitarian. Remember Putin's prophetic warning. We've seen Facebook blocked, Twitter blocked. We've seen foreign uh, media sources that sort of publish in Russian, such as BBC Russian or Voice of America blocked. We've seen the last uh, free radio station blocked, the last free TV station blocked. And Russians are not even allowed to present a countervailing narrative publicly anymore about the war. You can be in prison for up to 15 years in jail for spreading so-called fake news about what's going on. That is calling what Putin is doing in Ukraine as little as a war. Meanwhile, there's been a jump in the nature of that repression. People are getting arrested for having liked uh, posts about... um, protests online people are being stopped in the metro for having retweeted things about i I understand that they're looking at your cell phones i'm gonna have to leave this one here i think we're gonna bring you back uh ben judah this is ben judah the atlantic council author of fragile empire how russia fell in and out of love with vladimir putin this is greg palace sitting in for carrie harrison this is reality check and you're listening to kpfk in Los Angeles, kpfk.org is where you go to get this podcast. So if anyone who's missed it, you pass it on. And while you're at kpfk.org, make your tax-deductible donation. Do it right now. Say, Greg Palace sent me. And that's at 818-985-5735. You like the old-fashioned way of handing over your cash? Or kpfk.org. This is Greg Palace. 